Going On 14. Hello, everybody, and welcome to 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh, and this week we're talking about Jacob's Ladder, the film that takes normally easy-to-digest concepts like mental illness, death, and drugs, and makes them terrifying and incomprehensible. Because normally, yeah, normally there's no no complications yeah. at all. Yeah. Normally they're pretty easy, but... Yeah. 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 Normally. 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 A lot of stuff involved in these movies. Or at least in one of them. Spoilers. Oh, no spoilers. <laughs> All right, is it time for thumbs up, thumbs down? Yeah. All right, let's do Thank it. You. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like spoilers, you might like the shows on the Podcast Collective, such as the Bad Parenting Podcast, I Am Salt Lake, the Empty Rant Podcast, Talk Music to Me, and of course, the Rad Dad Radio Hour. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. Don't know what that was. You guys remember when that used to be mine? It was just very simple and short. And... That was pretty short. That was like, what, two seconds, three seconds? That's pretty short. Yeah, that was like 200 shows ago, Pat. Pat <laughs> <laughs> has now mentioned that used to be his thing more often than there are episodes of the Rad Dad Radio Hour. actually true. You remember when that was my thing? I haven't brought it up in forever, so I figured it was time. Right. I offered to give it back to you, and you said no. So you're welcome anytime. No take backsies. Sorry. Well, then stop mentioning it. No, that's never going to happen. Okay. Like me mentioning the Rad Dad Radio Hour. If you're looking for more of this, and why would you? Exactly. Head over to Google Podcasts. I or uh, not iTunes. They don't call it iTunes anymore. They call it uh, Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, talk to Podverse FM, Noon FM. We are on Spotify and we are on iHeartRadio. Leave us a review on Podchaser and give us a call at seven zero eight now. Wrap that's seven zero eight six six nine nine seven two seven to give us your ideas or say something nice. Well, speaking of saying something nice, somebody somebody spent something nice. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. I want to give a call out to listener Dan, who said, what's to the front and bought us a coffee over on uh, coffee, K-O-F-I. Uh, you can find us there. If you want to help keep us rolling. That is fantastic. I We really appreciate it. Keeps the server costs down and keeps us uh, recording every week. Keeps us doggies rolling. Yes. Well, and uh, yeah, I guess it's about that time. This week in... Music, movies, and TV. And sports. November 2nd, 1990, the release of the original Jacob's Ladder is the date that Pat has chosen for us this week. All right. So music, the number one song in the land was Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby. Sure was. Yeah. I got nothing. That was a song. <laughs> yeah. It says he's going to play it, but nothing happened. It was. But Octave is smarter than me, apparently. He was like, play Ice Ice Baby. And then Octave said no. <laughs> as much as we want to make fun of it now, it was the shit back then. For sure. Oh, yeah. Completely. People will ask him to play Ice Ice Baby, and I'll look and I'll say no. <laughs> Jesus. 
All right. So moving on. Robert Williams Scott was an American musician, record producer, and songwriter. Born in Mount Pleasant, New York, he became a pianist, vibraphonist, and singer, and could also play the accordion, cello, clarinet, and double bass. He studied at the La Follette School of Music at the age of eight and is working professionally at age 11. In 1952, he began touring with Louis Prima and also toured and performed with Gene Krupa, Lester Young, and Tony Scott. In 1956, he hit number 13 with the song Chain Gang. It sold over 1 million copies and was awarded a gold disc. As a songwriter, he won a Grammy Award for the song A Taste of Honey. Scott also co-wrote the song He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. He died of lung cancer in New York City at the age of 53. Good music there. To counteract the Ice Ice Baby. No. And that is not the Sam Cooke chain gang, just to be clear. That was the Robert William Scott chain gang. Correct. Moving on. On November 6th, I'm Your Baby Tonight, the third studio album by Whitney Houston, was released. Certified quadruple platinum in the U.S., it was Billboard Album of the Year for 1991, including the songs... I'm Your Baby Tonight, Miracle, All the Man That I Need, and the title track, I'm Your Baby Tonight. Okay, it says I'm Your Baby Tonight twice. That's my bad. That's all right. I don't remember much of that album. I I really love the first record, and I'm pretty sure I've heard stuff off the second album, but I don't really remember too much about this album. I mean, I remember... I'm Your Baby Tonight? I mean, I heard that on the radio, but I didn't... I hear I'm Your Baby Tonight was on that album. I'm Twice. pretty sure, yeah, that I'm Your Baby Tonight was on my on Your Baby Tonight. I don't want to go out on a limb, but I think my favorite Whitney Hughesy song is I'm Your Baby Tonight. Really? Because I prefer I'm Your Baby Tonight. <laughs> I will fight you. <laughs> I don't know. On I'm Your Baby Tonight, it might be I'm Your Baby Tonight, but it might be I'm Your Baby Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are idiots. Move along. <laughs> Moving along. Also on November 6th, Madonna released her new single, Justify My Love. The accompanying music video was banned by MTV and international controversy over its sexually explicit content. Amid is the word. What did I say? You said banned by MTV and international. No, banned by MTV amid international controversy. I'm your baby tonight, Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the one that Mike Myers did the uh the parody of i think it was actually i'm not aware of a mike myers oh. parody. yeah mike um, myers did it, but he was like it was him in the video as wayne hmm. so i mean it would make sense it would be a definitely easily parody uh, parody rich yes oh yeah and he, he if i remember correctly he hammed it up real good no mike myers hamming it up the guy no. who did Cat in the Hat hammed it up. The yeah. Love Guru? No. Mike Myers <laughs> and Dana Carvey. Mike Myers is my baby tonight. I'm your baby tonight, Patrick. I mean, at this point, you could probably get him. <laughs> who, Patrick? No, Mike Myers. Oh, you got, you got 50 bucks? Give him a call. Yeah, you can definitely get me for 50 bucks. And finally, if you're interested, musician Chris Isaac released his single Wicked Game on November 8th. That's a great freaking song and an amazing video for this 1990s. Mike was 18 South years Pete. old. Oh, yeah. It's a, and he's a pretty talented actor, too. Chris Isaac is definitely underrated. Hmm. I played I played Chris Isaac 
for Sophie, who, you know, likes to sing a lot. And she listened to him sing for a little while. And she's like, his range is like if you took your range and then stacked my range on top of it. Truth. Yeah, the guy can go from straight bass to the falsetto and sound still sound amazing. A lot of respect for that guy. All so, right. Handsome fella. Moving on to movies. The number one movie in the land was Jacob's Ladder, which knocked off Stephen King's Graveyard hmm. Shift. The Graveyard Shift was an anthology one, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. No, the, no, Graveyard Shift is one with the rats and the, the killer rats down in the sewer. Really? I Because the book was an anthology. I guess I've never seen the movie. All I remember is killer rats. Oh, yeah. Old textile mill with a rat infestation. Oh. It must have been one of the songs. That, I mean, because I, I, that's what I was thinking, Josh, is because I remember Graveyard Shift being a The book pack. absolutely was uh, a compilation. So I guess I assumed that the movie was, too, and assumed that I'd seen the movie. It's Did not it ha- great. No. Did it have what? It had, the, I'm, I'm asking, it had Cat's Eye in that anthology, did it? You mean in the Graveyard Shift collection? The, the book. book? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember because there's graveyard shift and there's another one about the same time. Yeah. I mean, I could see them mining one book with uh, the short stories and then turning them into individual films. Well, I mean, look at stand by me, stand by me, running man, uh, apt pupil. Shawshank. As I was thinking Shawshank Redemption, I kept coming up with the book, the story name. So, all right. Uh, Herman Arthur, Harry Lauder was an American character actor. He came to be a familiar presence in supporting roles in low-budget films and serials and television programs in the 1950s. Only once did he ever come close to stardom as Clay Morgan, one of the leads in Tales of the Texas Rangers from 1955 to 58, and for portraying Ralph Cotton on the television version of The Roy Rogers Show. He made appearances on many television programs, particularly westerns like The Gene Autry Show, Annie Oakley, the Lone Ranger, Gunsmoke, Rawhide, Death Valley Days, The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, The Virginian, State Trooper, Cheyenne, Bonanza, Maverick, and Have Gun, Will Travel. Later, he guest starred in the 1962 series Going My Way with Gene Kelly. He also made a guest appearance on Perry Mason. And he died this weekend. (laughs) And he's relevant to this weekend for some reason. I was like, did he die? And I was looking at the notes. I'm like, did I miss it? Pat just wanted to make sure we do about him. I mean, come on. Sorry, I I, I tried. I had to do this twee in ultra fast fashion, as you can tell. Instead of cutting one of the 72 Westerns, he cut the point. I will not be your baby tonight after that, Josh. I could say that he died this week, or I could say every TV show. Louder he's ever died been of a heart in. attack on October 30th, 1990. There we go. Yeah, that's what we needed. Closure. All right. Also, Mary Virginia Martin was an American actress, singer, Broadway star, and the mother of actor Larry Hagman, a muse of Rodgers and Hammerstein. She originated many leading roles over her career, including Nellie Forbush in South Pacific and Maria von Trapp in The Sound of Music. Martin won a Tony Award when she played Peter Pan in the Broadway production. She was named a Kennedy Center honoree in 1989. Martin died four weeks before her 77th birthday of cancer at her home in Rancho Mirage, California, on November 3rd, 1990. The Mary Martin Peter Pan, the stage production, was actually really good. 
having flashbacks. Oh, she, that's why she won a Tony Award. Yeah. Have you? Have, am I the only one who has ever seen it? Mm-hmm. I've never seen it. I don't know. I'm not sure. It seems like something my mom would have had on at some point growing up, but I don't remember. Yeah, because I remember because it came out on VHS when I was working at the video store back in like 90, 91. And that was like the big thing. Like everyone's mom came in to get it. We had a if you'd like to hear a good conversation about Peter Pan, do not no. turn into the Peter Pan episode. <laughs> I mean, I know that she was kind of the quintessential Peter Pan. Yeah. For a lot, but her, her and Sandy Duncan, yeah, they're pretty. Sandy much Duncan, that's the one. I, that's I've been the whole this whole time. I've been trying to think of who was my quintessential Peter Pan, and I couldn't remember her name. Yeah, but no, it's really good for two reasons. One, because it's filmed while she's. It's not like a stage-ish production. It's full-on stage production. And for all of us being in theater, I think we really, you'd really enjoy just seeing how professional the whole thing is. I like it. It's good. See at least once. Bring your kids if you <laughs> if you have them. If you Otherwise, don't. bring someone else's kids. Yep. Yeah, do that. Ask first, though. Nah. All right. Herbert Berghoff was an American actor, director, and acting teacher. Born and educated in Vienna, he moved to New York in 1939 while fleeing the Nazis. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, and launched a career as an actor and director on Broadway. Berghoff became a charter member of the Actors Studio in 1947 with classmates including Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, Jerome Robbins, and Sidney Lumet. Lumet? Lumet? Lumet. I've, Lumet. I've always heard of Lumet, but I I thought know. it was Lumet. Yeah. In 1945, he co-founded HB Studios as a place where aspiring actors could train and practice. In 1948, Uta Hagen joined the studio as Berghoff's artistic partner, and they married in 1957. Notable alumni included Jack Lemmon, Al Pacino, Liza Minnelli, Robert De Niro, Geraldine Page, Fritz Weaver, Anne Bancroft, and Matthew Broderick. Described by the New York Times as one of the nation's most respected acting teachers and coaches, he died of a heart ailment on November 5th at his home in Manhattan. uh... Holy crap, this is the twee of Josh List's things. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get a lot of time to edit things down. I just got list in and, and death. List and death. <laughs> would you like a list or would you like death? I'll take a list, please. Cake. All right. So TV, the top shows in the land were Cheers, 60 Minutes, Roseanne, and A Different World. They all died on March 23rd. <laughs> of a heart attack. I should have listed all top 10 shows. Yeah. I got into a rhythm there. Carlson Elizabeth Young, born on October 29th, is an American actress known for her roles on As the Bell Rings, Key and Peel, and the MTV television series Scream, and I'm assuming she was born this month. Well, it says born October 29th. You read right. You read yep. that. Oh, I man. Said, said born. I did a reverse Patrick. <laughs> What's a reverse Patrick? Find, you'll find out when you're my it's, baby tonight. It's moist. Uh, Just leave it there. Grit tap. <laughs> Jesus, Mike, add one to his tally. Uh, are you kidding? I'm not kicking Josh. You're getting another one because I don't want to kick Josh. I know what happened. <laughs> when you try to kick Josh. Put mine on his account. Yeah, he's. You got a tab for everybody, dude. All right. So news reports are full of coverage of Britain and France completion of the Channel under the English Channel, connecting both countries with an underwater route. 
I like the channel. Did they really call it the channel? Yep. Channel. Yeah, the channel tunnel. That's terrible. Yeah. Channel sounds like something you need to get a shot for. What if, what's wrong with some, you? Uh, put some cinnamon on it. Some cinnamon sugar. I got the mm. French. I've got the French channel. Oh, I like explains, I like the chocolate channel best. Explains why you're walking that way. <laughs> Moving on to sports. On November 2nd, the first major professional sports league regular season game was played outside of North America when the NBA's Phoenix Suns beat the Utah Jazz 119-96 at the Tokyo Metropolitan Gymnasium in Japan. Also on November 2nd, the Golden State Warriors registered a 162-158 to win over the Denver Nuggets with the 320 total points setting an NBA record for most points scored by two teams in a non-overtime game. Jeez. That's a hell of a game. Yeah, that is a shit ton of scoring. Yeah. On November 3rd, Atlanta Hawks center Moses Malone set an NBA record for free throws made in an NBA career by hitting 7 of 9 in a 121 to 120 win over the Indiana Pacers, passing Oscar Robertson. And lastly, to get us out of this twee, on November 3rd, the acronym of the week, oh. making a rare appearance in sports. T-N-O-N. I'm pretty sure that stands for 12 Nights of Nelly. <laughs> Depending on which Nelly that is, it could be good or bad. Oh, from like uh, Little House on the Prairie. Right. If it's her, pretty bad. If it's Nelly from The Office, pretty bad. Is there a good Nelly out there? No. I'm thinking the rapper. N- Nelly Furtado? Oh, Nelly the rapper. That would be, yo, Nelly Furtado would be very good. All right. No, that is not 12 Nights of Nelly. That is the NBA on NBC. Nelly Cad, Nelly Cad. Go sit in the corner. Mike, add two to his tab. Yeah. Yeah. And was that a Friends Nelly Furtado crossover? Is there any other kind? Yes. Ooh, None. It's hot in here. Let's take off all our clothes. I am way ahead of you. Because I'm your baby tonight. <laughs> anyway, the NBA on NBC debuted on NBC with its first game being the Los Angeles Lakers visiting the San Antonio Spurs and take us the fuck out of here, keyboard Joel. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So 1990, as we said before, the Jacob's ladder kicked off graveyard shift from the number one movie in the land. You have not seen it. Mourning his dead child, a haunted Vietnam war veteran attempts to uncover his past while suffering from a severe case of disassociation to do so he must decipher reality and life from his own dreams delusions and perceptions of death see on one hand that's an awful summary of the movie on the other hand it's pretty damn accurate (laughs) i completely disagree what that I, i i don't think that's accurate at all well Considering uh, that, uh, debatably, he is dead for 99% of the movie. Spoilers. Oh, that's 1990. You're the one always calling spoilers. What the hell? And that's the thing is, is like, it's not accurate, but I'm not sure what an accurate summary would look like. It would be a fucking mess. Well, to sum it up accurately, you'd have to spoil it in the description, and that's I think that's what they're trying to do. Okay, I get you. Right. No, I got you. I got you. Okay, okay, yeah, it's not accurate to the plot, but it's that doesn't make it a bad summary. That's fair. Okay. So, this was directed by Adrian Lin, 
who is known for such wonderful things as, strangely enough, Flashdance. I know, right? He also did Indecent Proposal and Fatal Attraction. He did a lot of sexy, like, erotic thriller type things. And then he did Flashdance and Lolita. Oh, and he did Nine and a Half Weeks. That was another one. Uh, This is written by Bruce Joel Rubin, who has written such classics as Ghost, The Time Traveler's Wife, and Deep Impact. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently, like, his script was, a lot of people looked at it and was like, how the hell do we even film this? And it got attached to a couple of different directors, and Adrian Lin took it and kind of went in his own direction with it. And there was apparently a lot of studio interference with getting this film made. Like, they messed with it, and then he messed back and kind of got the last laugh. Mm-hmm. The making of this movie was complex. There was a lot going on with that. A lot of it because people read the script, went, what? Originally, uh, I'll, I'll spoil a little bit of, uh, put a little bit of spoilers on the uh, trivia for this one, but originally, Jacob was supposed to be played by Tom Hanks. What? Yep. Hmm. Tom Hanks, unfortunately. Unfortunately? Maybe? I don't know. Said, I'm going to go do this movie called Bonfire of the Vanities instead. Mm. Yeah. So instead of Tom Hanks, we got Tim Robbins in the role of Jacob, Elizabeth Pina as Jezzy, Jezebel, Danny Aiello as Lewis, Matt Craven as Michael, Pruitt Taylor Vince as Paul, Jason Alexander as the lawyer Geary, Patricia Campbell as ex-wife Sarah, Eric LaSalle as Frank, and Ving Rames as George. Very. It's it's wild that the list has Eric LaSalle and doesn't have Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin was not credited in this movie. Okay, that makes sense then. Yeah, Which Macaulay Culkin. It is it is weird because, but at this point, they didn't know what Macaulay Culkin was going to become. For as keystone as his character was, the part was not really that big. That's fair. Some trivia on this one. So certain imagery was inspired by the photographs of a one Joel Peter Whitkin, uh, most recognizably the image of the hooded legless man shaking his head is inspired by his 1976 photograph, Man with No Legs. Yeah, apparently the original script assumed that a lot of the creatures would have a much more traditional hellish demon like from Renaissance painting sort of feel. And the director went in this off left direction, which I think the movie would have been lesser if they had been more traditionally demonic. Oh yeah. All the effects in this movie were filmed live with no post-production at all. The uh, shaking head effect director, Adrian Lynn filmed the actor waving his head and keeping the head and shoulders completely still at four frames per second. And then uh, when they filmed it, sped it up to 24 FPS, it looked had that cool, that shaky, jittery thing that they do digitally now. So, Yeah, which became a thing. Well, I don't know if it was this was the first time they used it, but it became a big thing. Yeah, it, it really did. For all the chiropractor scenes, Adrian Lin ensured that there was actually a real chiropractor on set who worked with Danny Aiello to ensure authenticity. According to Lin, chiropractors often approach him and thank him to go into the trouble to getting what they do exactly right. And this movie, believe it or not, served a major inspiration to the early games of the Silent Hill video game franchise. Totally get it. 
Yep. There are a lot of references to this movie. In fact, like there's subway scenes in the game that are the same subway from this movie. You know, the, the monsters, the shaking head thing, the music really pulled a lot from this movie. So is this the first viewing for any of us? It was the first viewing for me. First time I saw this, I was at Matt Brown's house. I was probably 15 or 16. So that was my second viewing. Okay. Pat? My second viewing as well. Okay. I saw it in the theater when it came out. I saw this one came out on VHS when I was working at the video store. I must have watched it at least 20 times. Really? Hmm. Wasn't your poster on the dorm floor? Yes, it was. I thought it was. Like, I always was fascinated by the idea of this movie, and it's always been, like, on my list of to see someday which is why I insisted we do the show topic. It was an excuse. Excuses via this podcast are the only way I watch movies that aren't like Marvel or something else, like big franchise Star Wars stuff. Like, remember when you saw Inception and it ended and you were like, what the hell just happened? You got that feel from it, bringing it to a contemporary movie. This was the first movie that I watched. And when it ended, I was like, what just what just happened? I need to rewind everything and watch it again. There's three stories in this movie. There's a story of him in Vietnam. There's a story of him when he's still with his ex-wife, Sarah. And then there's a story of the now where he's with Jezebel. And I like that the three stories are really one story, but there's enough left ambiguous that you have to like puzzle it out and put the pieces together. Mm hmm. I had the same reaction you did the first time I saw it. Like I got to the end and I was like, what the hell just happened? But then I didn't want to see it again. I wouldn't have watched it again if it wasn't for the show, to be honest. Yeah. Really? Now, see, I I would totally think that this would be right up your alley. No, I don't know. I'm, and at the time when I saw it, you know, obviously my perspective was a little different than it is now. So I was kind of curious to see if things would change. But I still, yeah, I was, I, I don't know. Huh. See, this movie stuck with me. Uh, like, uh, I'll, I'll just dive right in because I, I found the events disturbing, the performances engaging, and as the mystery like twisted and turned back and forth, uh, thought I knew what was going on, didn't know, and then got to the end. I was like, huh, well, how is that? And then thought about it a little bit more. Did some reading on it, and I was like, okay, yeah, no, I think, I think I'm into this. The only thing that uh, I'm sure was studio interference is the final title card, I think, is misleading. The final title card talking about drugs being used on troops in Vietnam. I looked up the drug after the movie, and it doesn't have the effect that they were describing in the film, but it was a real... Oh, it's a real drug, yeah. but the thing is, is his knowledge of the drug comes as he's dying. If he's not a chemist, it doesn't make any sense. My belief is that he died mm -hmm. and he was stabbed in a friendly fire incident in the jungle. Another American killed him and his brain concocted this drug thing to make sense of why another American would kill him after his life has been so fucking unfair. He's a brilliant guy who goes to a war that he doesn't understand, has a shitty time, his kid dies, 
And in the end, he's not even killed by an enemy. He's killed for no reason in the jungle by another American, and his brain just can't handle it. It can't let go. Okay, so you're of the idea that this is just a... This is him living his... Fighting his death type of thing. Yeah, which is made explicit in the script. Okay. I have seen this multiple times. I'm still not sure. And I love that it is ambiguous. Yeah, because there's some things that that throw me on it that I mean, if it was if it was a if it was any other directors, any other like that didn't didn't want this much detail because these guys really were into making this movie. There's things in the movie and I, I, I've watched, uh, watched, you know, YouTube videos on this, that sort of thing. And some of the things that have kind of like changed my view of the movie from when I originally watched it back in the nineties was he's in the cab and they show the image of the cab driver's, uh, license, his license, plaque. yeah, the yeah. plaque and it expires in 1972. The Vietnam scene, which probably only took somewhere between 24 to 48 hours, took place in 1971. There's also a I'm with Nixon button on the cabbie's dashboard that they make that they show in one of the scenes. He would not know that that was going to happen. So my confusion on looking at some of this thing is how does. okay? so what happened with his life? That he that I mean, is he still living? I mean, are we reversing? I mean, is it is it one of those like time loop type of things where there's knowledge of the future that he I mean, he should not have known about that sort of, you know, the button and the time on the thing should not have paid. Should not have been there if he was hallucinating. Well, I think that it's established that he's a brilliant man and he can make some educated guesses as to what the world would be like when he gets back. And the fact that those guesses happen to be true explains the apparent anachronisms. There's also some other out-of-place things that make more sense if he is just, for most of the movie, dying and not being willing to let go. Like, there's a weird scene where he's stopped on the street by a bunch of girls who suddenly sing, Hey, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. I believe that what was actually happening is he's dying in the hospital and that's on the radio. I could buy that. His brain translates it into... This this mix. And that's he's constantly saying, I'm not dying. It my back hurts. He's making sense of the stimulus where he can feel that his back is fucked up. Mm-hmm. But his brain is constantly trying to work through these. No, I can't be dead. This is unfair. Uh, until he finally accepts it at the end and is able to move on. Okay. That's, that was my take on the whole thing. I'm with you 75% of the way, but I'm going to throw some other stuff in here. Okay. First off, Jacob's ladder. the The phrase of that is maintains that there is an, the existence between heaven and hell. Pulls from when uh, Jacob was running away from Esau, fell asleep, wakes up, the whole wrestling with God thing. Saw the angels ascending and descending on the stairs. Okay. Now, in the very beginning, he's laying on Danny Aiello's chiropractic table, and he tells him he looks like a fat cherub. Right. Okay. You look like an angel. Has anybody ever said that to you? Yeah, you, every time you come in here. Okay. Danny Aiello, I believe that in this movie, him going into the hospital through that janky gurney ride where they're going from, 
a hospital to this worn out, dilapidated houses to the insane asylum with all the freaks running around on the ceiling and then running it through blood and guts and all that. And all the dismembered hands and legs. And stuff. Right. Yeah. All the dismembered hands and legs all the way to Jezebel handing the syringe to the eyeless doctor that stabs him in the forehead is him descending into hell. Danny Aiello is actually an angel in this story. That, that was my take on that scene, too. Yeah. Yeah. Jezebel is actually a devil pulling him to hell. Danny Aiello was actually a angel pulling him out. Why he shows up in the hospital, threatens everybody and gets him out of there and takes him back, relieves his pain, and then sends him out to the taxi driver. Now, this is how deep I got into this. I've gotten into this movie. Ready for this? So he gets into the cab, says to the cabbie, this is all the money that I have. Please take me home. I'm in Brooklyn across the river. Who takes you across the river after you're dead? The cabbie is actually Charon. I gotcha. I'm with okay. it. Follow me on this one. Okay. The cabbie is actually Charon. The that makes sense that he would like Nixon then. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Wow. So how far did Mike get into this? Cost of the ride is $3.10. Adjusting for inflation, three ten from 1990 equates to $9.75 now, which will buy you just around half an ounce of silver, which is the cost of crossing the river, which comes out to 220 grains, which is about the same weight of a silver coin from Greek and Roman mythology. All right. I, I'm with you on that, although I think that uh, all of the angels and demons are, as Danny Aiello pretty much told us, are simultaneously angels and demons, depending on your perspective. Right. And they're demons to him because he cannot let go of his son being dead. Right. It, yeah. And that's the thing is, depending on he's constantly seeing Jezebel as a demon, but she's also kind of an angel. Right. I don't know. She, nah, she takes care of him when he gets sick. When he's when he is got that huge fever, she's the one putting him in the water, making sure that he's OK. She burns his memories, which would be a key step to helping him let go. Exactly. In the photographs in the very first scene, what does she do? I don't like things that make you sad. And she burns the memories of that. But he still has that one photo of his son who got killed by hit, getting hit by a car right before he went to Vietnam. I'm with you. That's the memory he can't let go. The thing that's making him cling to his life, even though it hurts him. Right. And he says to the caddy, where take me home. He doesn't take him to the apartment that he's sharing with Jezebel. He takes him back to the apartment that he had with his wife and with his son. The guy at the door answers him. I haven't seen you in years. I never thought you were going to come back. He has found his way home. He has willingly paid the toll to get across the river sticks and has accepted the fact that he's dead. And that's why when he gets back to the apartment, his son is there waiting for him to lead him up the stairs, up Jacob's ladder to heaven. Joel, you were trying to interject. I want to hear what you have to oh, say. Oh, I was just going to say that Elizabeth Pena is like kind of a dick to him. And like, I remember one specific line, she's like, Oh, that is that your son, the one that's dead? And I'm just like, really? What 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 kind of person is this? She doesn't like kids, obviously, because she couldn't even remember the name of his kids that dropped off the dropped off yeah. the photographs. She is she's everything that Sarah is not. 
Right. Yeah. yeah it's a shame about uh, about her. She like drank herself to death at the age of 55. Yeah, right. she died in 2014. Elizabeth Pena? Yeah. yeah. Oh. And cirrhosis of the liver. And that's it's upsetting because she actually did a voice in one of my other favorite movies. Uh, she was a voice of Mirage in uh, The Incredibles. Evil Guy's Henchman. Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I figured Pat had probably seen it since he's because of his niece, but yeah. What, The Incredibles? Yeah. Yeah, I saw it. But so, uh, between the intense, very intense religious tinged gothic imagery uh, with a little bit of like a tool video thrown in there and mm-hmm. the fact that we can have these sorts of conversations, I dug it. But I kind of want to hear what Pat has to say since he hasn't said much about it. I haven't said much because I, I pretty much agree with everything you guys are saying. I think it's basically, I mean, it, I don't, I don't think it's as uh, nebulous as Mike is making it out to be. I think it's just literally this is this all occurs while he's struggling to stay alive in Vietnam after he's been stabbed by going out in the into the into the jungle all by himself and basically just a shitty happenstance. He gets taken out by one of his own. Not it couldn't it could possibly not even be somebody from his own battalion. It could be two battalions running into each other or whatever, you know, who knows? Cause it was, there was a battle going on for sure. He, get, he gets stabbed and uh, taken into triage and he's fighting for his life. As the surgeon says, you know, well, he really, he really fought. So, I mean, I think it was just a struggle between him trying to stay alive and him, you know, eventually accepting his own death. And his son, Gabe was there to, to walk him up the ladder. Like you said, I think it's, it's fairly straightforward. No, I mean, and it's not, like you said, it's not as nebulous as I completely, as I'm giving it up to be. Right. It's the first movie that I recall watching and finishing it. It's it's kind of like watching Donnie Darko where you finish it and you're like, what the hell just happened? It's a better movie because they cut the key scene. Because there's a scene in the script that has Jezebel flat out telling him Everything in their life is in his imagination, mm-hmm. and she thinks it's great, and the whole thing with the drug, that's really impressive. And deciding to cut that scene out and not film it was a really strong choice. It respects the audience's intelligence enough to say, hey, the pieces are here, figure it out. Turn it over in your head. There's going to be some red herrings where you're not sure what's happening, but like you'll get there. And that was one of the things I liked about it. It didn't spoon feed me what they were trying to say. Mm-hmm. I agree. I I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I'm glad I watched it again because I liked it more this time than I did the first time I saw it. The first time I saw it, I pretty much was just obsessed with the imagery. And I was like, oh, this looks you know really fucked up and cool and and the biblical references and stuff. Because I myself was uh, more into the the Bible studies at that point when I first saw it. So. What, it just no. struck me more as a as a beautiful but tragic story the first time I saw it, and this time I kind of understood it a little more. The song that he sings. Oh, about, yeah, his what baby boy or whatever, that whenever yeah. I'm blue. Or, yeah, I'd never heard that song before. I don't even... No, look that one up. The song is one of those about... It's a guy singing about his son, the entire thing, and then it's not until the very end of the song the last three lines, he sings about how the angels kept you from me because they were lonely. It's a whole song of singing about a father missing his, his dead son. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of cool stuff in this. 
in this movie. I mean, they really, like you said, they make the movie. This is what it is. Like you said, figure it out. And that was the first movie that I'd ever seen that made me go, what the hell happened? Rewind, watch it again. What the hell happened? I got to figure out again. And like I said, it may not be as good as I think it is, but at the same time, it definitely opened a opened a new genre of film to my eyes. And I think for its time, like we've seen stuff like this before. This was a specific influence on The Sixth Sense, where you've got both guys that don't know they're dead with a child at the center of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've seen the story told over and over again by lesser storytellers. So it's kind of old hat. But at the time, it was kind of groundbreaking. You know what movie it reminds me of thematically and just visually? Angel Heart. No. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, really a little does. angel heart, a little serpent in the rainbow. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. serpent in the rainbow. That was, oh, that's another good one. Yeah, uh, angel heart is actually on the list. IMDb is like, if you like this, you may like angel heart. I'm like, yeah, you're right. But um, this didn't hit for Joel. And I want to no. hear more about that. Yeah. Seven and a half stars on IMDb, by the way. Just I just looked it up because I was curious what everybody thought. I don't, I don't know that it's any one particular thing. It just... Like I said, the first time I saw it, I was pretty young and I kind of was like, what the fuck was that? And then, you know, here I am 30 years later. I'm like, OK, maybe I'll get a little more. Maybe I'll dig it. I'll enjoy the imagery. I'll enjoy the the symbolism because, I, you know, I got what they were going for. But I found myself just kind of right back where I was <laughs> the first time I saw it. Where I was like, eh, it's a movie. I get what they're doing, but just doesn't do anything for me just kind of felt it left it wanting and that, and, you know, I mean, granted, I think we need more movies with angelic chiropractors, but uh, that's just me personally. I don't know. Yeah. It's wild to me that you're into Lynch and not into this film. Right. Yeah. I would take this movie a dozen times over any David Lynch. But to me, Lynch is, a lot of it's about the the emotional response, the visceral response to what you're seeing. But there is a deeper subtext to a lot of it that is a lot less obvious than this is. I mean, it doesn't ever explain it to you like this This ultimately does. I think I think Lynch does a lot of things just to do them for shock value. I don't think there is anything deeper in a lot of stuff he does. Well, and that's where you're wrong. But, you know, yeah, Joel on that one. Read read some books on Lynch. And, uh, no thanks. Yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll have a, maybe a better appreciation. But it, we're not talking about David Lynch. Just drop a read a book on Pat. I did. <laughs> that, yikes! I'm I'm a Lynch guy. I've read books. Um, I, I wouldn't say that out loud nowadays. I was just watching some stuff on Lynch today. But anyway, yeah, I don't know. It just this didn't didn't do anything for me then. Doesn't do anything for me now. It just doesn't. And I like movies that have a deeper meaning and has some subtext to it and has some something more to kind of go, make you want to go back and watch it again. But this just, for whatever reason, just isn't one of those movies. Hmm. And I like all the people in it. Yeah, I was consistently shocked at how stacked this cast was. And I, I think you see a lot of the like the scary parts of even going to a movie like Ghost. Like the genuinely disturbing parts of Ghost, I think, were in some ways directly lifted from this. Well, it was directed by the same guy. 
Right. But that was I, I immediately started thinking of the legitimately like unnerving bits with mm. Stephen Wright in the subway. Oh, yeah. Uh, completely evocative. Was, it was that not Wright? Stephen Wright? Shit, no. no, I'm not sure. There's another guy I mix up with Stephen Wright. Yeah. I know. I, I know. Like Vincent uh, something. What is his name? Vincent uh... Scavelli. Scavelli. Yeah. 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 Scavelli. Yeah. Yeah, and and Ghost came out the same year as this. It was directed by Jerry Zucker. Okay, oh, so I mean, not the same director, but it was no, written I'm, by Bruce Joel Rubin. Yeah, the writer. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Same year though, both of them. Interesting. These were developed in parallel tracks by the same writer, but one did could not have influenced the other. Hmm. Huh. The writing. Could have. I mean, unless they went to him and were like, hey, what do you think for this scene? Hey, I got a great idea. Well, the subway scene did come from a nightmare that the writer had, so he could have worked it into both films. He did. One of the things about the opening sequence where he is in the in the subway, when he looks across to the other side of the subway, it's actually the the, duplicate. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. They just re- they just kind of like reversed reversed it. It's the same side, but it does mention in the writing of this book, of writing of the script, that he, he had a recurring dream that he was trapped in a subway, and that was one of the, apparently it carried over to this and carried over to the ghost also. Also in the subway, something that uh, got pointed out to me in further reading was that every single print ad is an anti drug ad. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's neat. I didn't catch that. Yeah. That's a nice little subtle touch. Yeah, and you know what I think it's funny is because it's like I look up, I look up uh, Jacob's Ladder, and they're like, "You may like Angel Heart." I look up Ghost, and it's like, "You may like Dirty Dancing." Yeah, that seems about right. Yeah, I just, I just, how you have the same writer, and it kind of the the road forks in two completely different directions on this one. So, shall we move on? Take a break. Yeah, I think the break and talk about the the now is probably wise. Yeah. All right. So when we come back, we are going to talk about Jacob's Ladder from 2019, starring Michael Ely, and uh, we will be back in a little bit. So, 2019, they made a remake of this movie. After his brother returns home from war, Jacob Singer struggles to maintain his sanity. Plagued by hallucinations and flashbacks, Singer rapidly falls apart as the world and people around him morph and twist into disturbing images. I don't actually have a criticism of that particular... That That's fairly accurate. It doesn't tell the whole story, but I think it's more accurate than the first one. I mean, it's definitely not wrong. Yeah. I think it's easier to box in the second one. True. Yeah. Hundred percent. So this is directed by David M. Rosenthal, who has directed such things as a single shot, Janie Jones and the Perfect Guy. And then a TV show called The Pork Fizz Chronicles, which <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but it's animated and it's a comedy, so I may have to Grab yourself a can of pork soda, sit down and watch some. Yeah. It's got Bob Dole in it. Pork soda, Annie. That's not how that song goes. Um, it's, it, That's what you it, have it, with your poke salad. Poke salad and pork soda? Ew. 
Uh, Jeff Bueller, Sarah Thorpe are the writers of the screenplay on this one. Jeff Bueller wrote such things as Night Flyers off of uh, Sci-Fi, The Prodigy, Pet Cemetery, and The Midnight Meat Train. Sarah Thorpe has written this. This is her first foray. Midnight Meat Train is kind of an underrated horror movie. It's not great, but it's entertaining and better than a lot of other stuff. That's See, out there. you saying it's not great just moved up three notches on my list of movies to watch soon. Is anyone else not surprised that Joel had an opinion on Midnight Meat Train? Not, not at all. all. No. Okay. Vinny Jones is a as a bad guy. Well, yeah. that's not a shocker, but yeah, I was going to say, yeah. does he ever play a good guy? Yeah. yeah. Story written by Jeff Bueller, uh, who also did the screenplay, and Jake Wade Wall, who along with this did 2007's The Hitcher, which is a remake we need to do, and When a Stranger Calls in 2006. Hmm. Which was better than it could have been. It wasn't yeah. as good as the original. Are you, are you praising it? I'm not sure how you're going with this one. Well, we, we did a show on When a Stranger Calls. No, we didn't. It's on the list, but it's on the list, but we've never done it. Yeah. And I like the original, but I, I did not hate the, the remake. It was actually mm-hmm. decent. Now, the Hitcher, that's another story. Yes. Uh, this is starring Michael Ely as Jacob Singer. Jesse Williams as his brother, Isaac Ike Singer. Nicole Bahari. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bahari is Samantha Singer, the wife. I will leave that right there. Guy Burnett as Hoffman, Joseph Sikora as Paul Rudiger, Carla Souza as Annie slash Angel, Richie Coster as Lewis. And then that's where we're going to stop. I want to call out one additional actor just because he's been popping up a lot on my radar, and that's Yusuf Gatewood. You would know him. I know uh, all of us would probably know him because uh, recently he was Famine in Good Omens, and he is uh, in oh. the second season of Umbrella Academy. Was he the guy at the very beginning? Yes. Yeah, he was the the guy in the opening scene. Yeah. Okay. Cool. He's got these dark, haunted eyes. As soon as I saw him in season two of the Umbrella Academy, I was like, "Why do I know this dude?" And I immediately hit my phone. I was like, that's right. He was famine and good omens. So after having those two fairly recent contacts, I recognized him the instant I saw him at the beginning of this. Nice. Very cool. Oh, he was in the originals. That's uh, another show I wanted to watch, too. I just looked him up. Yep, I remember. I know who you're talking about now. Very yeah, cool. He, he always, like, in his promo stills, he doesn't have the, like, super, super dark eyes. But in everything I've actually seen him in, he almost looks haunted. Yeah, he's chestnut in uh, Umbrella yeah. Academy. Nice. All right, so trivia on this one. This had been in post-production for almost two years and had been finished for a year without anybody screening it. Huh. Uh, at 55 minutes into the movie, Jacob is driving with his brother Isaac, but the reflection from Isaac in the car window is actually Jacob's. I noticed that. And then I was like, I noticed there was something awful about it. I couldn't figure out what it was. Yeah. This is a remake of the 1990 film, Jacob's Ladder. What? Michael Ely and Joseph Sikora both co-starred in the movie The Intruder in 2019. Now, it seems like that trivia got a little wonky, but that is literally all the trivia. 
on this movie on IMDb. I'm not surprised. Well, Michael Ely is one hell of an actor, and that's probably the last good thing I have to say about this film. Uh, I feel it missed the mark on virtually every possible level. I am not good at deciphering twists. I am frequently, even if it's super obvious and telegraphed, the guy who's like, oh, I saw the twist coming a mile away. Called it well before. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was, I think, the moment that Isaac said to Sam, just do what he says. I was like, yep, they're flipped. This whole time he's been believing he's... She immediately listened to him. Right. Yeah. I was like, they gave the game away entirely. And at that point, I was paying attention to both Isaac and Sam and reinterpreting their characters. And I, I saw the rest of the movie play out. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not good at this. <laughs> it, was, it was right about that same point, maybe a little bit later that I figured when, he, when suddenly Isaac started speaking in complete sentences and everything, I was like, like wait a minute. So, yeah. Yeah. I see. Here's the thing. This this movie is written by a second year film student who saw the original a long time ago and kind of remembers it and has a couple a couple things that they remember from Sunday school. That's because like, okay, Jacob, you had a great little Jacob steals the birthright from his brother thing going, except it wasn't Isaac. It It was was Esau. Esau. Right. And I'm like, all right, you almost had it. You were this close. But, you yeah. know, that's not the guy that would have. I mean, honestly, I would have given this this movie more credit if the brother's name actually was East, because that would have been like that. May, that would make complete sense because Jacob steals the life, steals his brother's life on this one. Then comes back around to realize he actually, you know, isn't what it, what it thinks. The introduction of Annie Angel. So late in the movie. It seems like they had a lot of ideas that they just kind of shoehorned in, like lines of the line about angels and demons from the original movie that uh, Danny Aiello said. That was really awkwardly shoved into this movie. And super early. You say late, but she was in almost the first shot. She was, but there was no, I mean, it wasn't like Jezebel. Right, no, the point is, is like she did become a drug addicted, follow a fallen prostitute. But she was also uh, in his hallucinations of the people in his unit back in Iraq. There were like three soldiers. One mm-hmm. was a woman. That was her. Okay. He he had worked the people in his current life into his fiction of what his life would have been like if his life had been his brother's. Okay, I missed that she was in that opening shot. I only didn't miss it because for a second I thought she was, oh, I'm blanking on her name, How I Met Your Mother and... Colby Smothers? For a second I thought she was Colby Smothers. 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 And then I looked looked her up, figured out she wasn't. So uh, that was the only reason I knew. I thought she was the nurse in the hospital when he was spacing out about being back in, in, in the war. She may also have been there. But, like, she kisses him at one point randomly in the middle of the movie, which was another kind of clue if you hadn't already gotten it. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
I, I don't know. They, they they tried to like hit super duper hard on the mental illness and drugs and how we don't treat our soldiers right. And they kind of missed a lot of the supernatural stuff. And for all of the action and actually fairly decent acting, I still found myself fucking bored for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, the the one thing I, I one of the things that I, I kept saying to myself as I was watching it is I was like, this is basically like you were saying about Zack Snyder's Watchmen. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, they they just totally missed the point of the original film. Granted, the cast was very nice to look at. And the cinematography was was great. I mean, it was a very good looking film, but yeah, it was nine miles away. You could see what was happening, and it was just not. Well, the original movie was was two hours long, and this movie was an hour and a half. And I think it probably suffered for not having that extra half hour to spread it out and and slow the pacing down and tell a better story because. It starts off right off the bat, like you just get thrown right into the action, like boom, you know, and there's the pacing just was too frantic. It's wild to me that you point that out, that this is actually shorter than the original, because to me, it felt longer. It, I was exactly what I was thinking. And it's a pacing issue. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think Joel's got the right of it. These are, you've got some actors who clearly know how to act and someone who knows how to artfully set up a camera and process film, like, intelligently and artistically. Everything else about making a movie, though, they're kind of, like, not there and just kind of copy off of whatever thriller you might find on Netflix. Well, Mm -hmm. like the old lady that threw Paul in front of the train was very reminiscent of the old lady in the exorcist three. We were talking about that previously, you know, they borrowed heavily from a lot of other places and then they shoehorned in parts of the original film. Like my recollection of it, we watched it last night was that the line about the angels and devils thing was really early on. I thought it was, it was. was. was, And it was like, crammed in there because oh man remember that it, it, it's what i said it's like a film student oh do you remember that line from the original oh such a great line we got to find a reason for this to have this converse that line going but there was no reason for that guy to say anything like that i mean danny aiello in the original one was waxing philosophical on him all the time when he was working on his back that made sense for him to say these things to him for this other guy to talk like that to jacob was Oh yeah, almost to be kind of like if I was Jake, like why are you talking this way? Yeah, you. It was out of character for him. It's like yeah, you're clearly quoting someone else. Why are you saying this? Mm-hmm. And then the the whole character swap slash MacGuffin. It's like somebody was sitting in the the two the screenwriters were sitting there going, "Dude, I got a clever idea. Let's do this." And it just it didn't. There was no point. Why why bother when you've already got a solid story? Even if I don't, I don't care for the first version, or I don't, you know, need to see it again. It's still, it's a cohesive, complete piece of work that makes sense and is well done. Whereas this, it just feels like somebody was trying to be too clever for their own good, and it just, it didn't work. Yeah, they re- they remembered cool scenes from the original and wanted to make sure that they crammed them in there because. Oh, Jacob's Ladder's got to have, you have to have him being on a gurney, even if it's only for five seconds at the very end of the movie and makes 
absolutely no sense in reference to the original original scene. He's you on a gurney. Got to have a bathtub scene. Got to yeah. have a bathtub scene. You got to have. I don't know. I think it almost being told from a third person perspective on this one. Like you're not. You're seeing it for more than just Jacob. I don't know. I I lo- one of the things that I liked about the first one is that everything is from Jacob's view a hundred percent. The the fractured view of Jezebel when he when he sees her through the windows, that sort of imagery through the whole movie. This was very watered down on that front of imagery and any sort of outside of the guys going kind of nuts plotline. Now, was his psychiatrist was that the analog for Danny Aiello's character? I don't. Even- I think so. I mean, as close as they could get, but he was kind of a dick. <laughs> like, aside from, yeah, yeah, he, he felt like he was going to be a bad guy, whatever that means in this world. That's what it felt like to me when he was there. I'm like, okay, what's this guy's ulterior motive? You know, what's his part in all of this? Where is he going to fall on the line? Whereas Danny Aiello, I never had a question that he was an angelic figure. Not just because he said it, but, you know, the way he was shot, you know, the lighting behind him, the mm-hmm. kindness he always had. He was never cruel or, or anything. He was always helpful and friendly. This guy just felt like he had an, some sort of hidden agenda and was kind of, yeah, like I said, he's kind of a dick. Yeah. And I guess, you know, like, if you want to put yourself in the head of the uh, screenwriter without going directly up his own butt, Ew. he could he could explain it in a way it's like this is the way this guy sees the world like he's kind of a fuck up so he thinks that the guy who's his psychiatrist who's trying to help him is actually trying to hurt him but his drug dealer and junkie prostitute girlfriend are the people who are trying to help him who are like hey let's hang out after work dude like both of them were outside like hanging on a car wanting to go out for beers because that's how he saw them because he he fundamentally had a fucked up view of people and that could be like we're seeing his psychiatrist through the unreliable narrator's eyes where he seems sort of sinister because this guy is a mess and doesn't trust him i think they overdid it with paul's makeup also because he looked like a zombie and it's like are you trying to kind of give away your your big twist by you know because you look at him and he wasn't right. The answer is yes. He is giving away his big twist. Yes. Yeah. They are trying to hint for much, much dumber people than we are. Her? <laughs> Most of us. Which, incidentally, I believe on IMDb, I don't have it pulled up now, but when I looked at it last night, I was like, I wonder what rating this got. And I'm trying it's to pull like it up. A, a, like, I think it's got like a three. I think it was like three or 3.5. It was really low. It had and, a 5% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I, I turned to Laura and I'm like, that's not a good sign. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it was that bad, but I mean, three point five, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think it deserves that much hate, but it it was it was just kind of there. It wasn't great. It wasn't awful. It, you know, when you remake a movie that specifically doesn't insult the audience's intelligence by like telegraphing all of your stuff so obviously that you'd have to be mentally incompetent to not see it coming. But the, the, the average person 30 years down the road 
is not as isn't. I mean, we have we have dumbed down our society, so you kind of have to dumb down your media. Down my nuts. Disagree, sir. We are at a higher rate of literacy. We are at a higher rate of education, higher reading level than we have ever been in human history. There is more access to more knowledge, and there's never been less desire to access that knowledge. Okay, I was just like, that's just a common, like the idiocracy argument gets repeated over and over and over again, and the statistics don't bear it out. So it, it is one of those things that sticks in my craw. Fucking life sticks, you know, <laughs> shows you, I mean. It's, it's a common misconception is my point. I don't think it's a misconception. I really don't. The numbers disagree. Well, I'm number one. I think Josh is right. Yeah, this is opinion versus data. This is not where I thought this conversation was going to go. Well, here, let me steer it back the other way. Let can, me, I mean, statistics are are not as as un uh, what's the word? I, I can't think. Why can't I think? Yeah, unrefutable as as people want to believe they are. So, question. Let's say in 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 this world that we're talking about that the first film was never made. If this was the only iteration of Jacob's Ladder that existed, would that have made it a better movie? Well, I know we wouldn't have watched it because then we didn't, wouldn't have had a remake. Well, of course, but if you saw this and there was no original film, if this movie exists in a vacuum, is it better? Yeah, are we being harsh on it because the original film is better? It's no. probably not as badly reviewed if the original does not exist. And I think that was kind of the point I was trying to make before we got sidetracked is if you've got this, like, I value a movie that doesn't insult my intelligence mindset going into this and you see this movie, you might be a little harsher on it just because you're predisposed to appreciate something that respects your intelligence. Or not. Well, I'm just no. I'm just thinking about it in those terms, because I just as a question I come up and I hadn't actually thought it through as far as what my opinion was. Because it still feels kind of ham fisted. Yeah. But like, I agree with Pat that this is not a five percent on Rotten Tomatoes movie. It's not that fucking bad, but it gets disproportionately harshly reviewed because of the audience that is likely to be watching it. Because you're more likely to watch it, I think, if you're a fan of the original. I could be off on that. Well, when I posted on Facebook that I was watching it, you know, there were people that were like, they made a remake. And uh, like our listen, one of our listeners, the listener, Jacob's Ladder is one of his favorite films. So he was kind of like, oh, great. You know, like, that's what we need is, is a remake of that. And that first film is pretty well revered as kind of a, a touchstone of of horror filmmaking. And a lot of people love it, so I could see them being a little harsher on it because of that. I don't think it was a great film, and if that one didn't exist, I still don't think I would have enjoyed it, because it's still got some problems. Regardless. But very pretty to look at. I'll take that as the steam going out of this conversation. Right now. <laughs> I was like, did everybody leave me? I mean, we could continue to dunk on this thing, but like, it's got a lot of the same flaws that a lot of the other movies that we all tend to dislike have. Like, I feel like I'd be repeating myself, complaining over and over again about how it missed the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it missed the point. I've said that before. I mean, so, this is a, this is a movie I watched. It's it's not horrible and it's not great. 
and I'll probably never watch it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I go so far as to call it bad, but not so bad that I'd like get upset about it and rant. Yeah, there's a lot, lot more movies that are far worse than this is. Uh, but I think just the fact that it, it sat in kind of development hell and then was shelved for a year before it ever saw the light of day says a lot about how the studio felt about it too. And Michael Ely is legitimately good in terms of his performance in this. He just yeah. had much to work with. Yeah. There, there's a lot of good things in the film, but the script isn't one of them. Yeah. hundred percent with you on that. Visually it's nice and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, there's just not a lot to be said about it. Right. So is it, uh, yeah, I guess I'm, th- I'm calling it <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down. Jacob's ladder. Then Pat, I say thumbs up. Okay. And now, well, no, we, no, you Joel. Thumbs oh, up, thumbs down. um, I well, the original, I, I still give it a thumbs up, even though it's not something that's hmm. for me. I still think it it was, you know, obviously it is doing something right because it does have such a rabid fan base and people, you know, like yourself, Mike, that will delve into it. And I, I respect that, you know, but it's just not for me, but it's still, you know, it, it was a well done movie. So, yeah. Josh. Yeah. I mean, a massive thumbs up for the uh, original. I'm glad that uh, we did this show because uh, I, this is a movie that I it, it affected me so I, I'm glad to have had that experience of it, it hitting me and becoming one of the parts of the things I think about so I'm glad you liked it it's a thumbs up for me obviously it, it I loved it and it actually affected my choice of horror movies from this point on so for the then eh all, all at once now. One, two, three. <laughs> you mean for, for the now? For the now, yeah. That What would I say? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> well, there's only um, two choices, and you didn't say now, so. Oh, okay. Well, then now. <laughs> Thumbs down. Thumbs yes. down. Thumbs, Thumbs down. down. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I mean. Hmm? Will you watch it again? Well, no, no, but I mean, I'm. I, my point is it's not going to be a thumbs up, but I'm not 100% sure it's a thumbs down. I might have to do the. I might have to do the thumbs sideways for it. Yeah, I got the rare thumbs akimbo. <laughs> uh, it's it's more like a no thumbs. Yeah, I would rather just do a no thumb. I I don't even have an opinion on it. It just huh. it exists. Yeah, it, I mean, I'm not upset that I watched it, and I'm not happy I watched it. It just you know, it, I don't know. I, I mean, have a negative sort of visceral reaction to uh, justify a thumbs down. Yeah, exactly. I don't feel like, you know, that, that this never should have been made and it was crap or anything like that, but I don't, I'm I'm never going to sing its praises or, or watch it again. Yeah. I think it is one of those films, though, that people are going to use as an argument to say remakes are unnecessary. For sure. Remakes like this are unnecessary. Yeah. It's, a, it's It was wholly unnecessary. Yeah. Have we ever had a no thumbs? No, that's a new thing, I think. We've had a no-nos. <laughs> had a no-nos, yeah. No. No, no thumbs. Yeah, that's new. Joel. Yes. 
Oh God! What do we have <laughs> next, next week? Next week, uh, we're going to hang outside in the yard. You want to expand on that? We're going to hang outside in the yard. No, we're doing a, a show <laughs> on on yards. And I yes, expected him to say no. I would not. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about you know the kind of yards we had growing up, yard work, things we had to do as a kid versus now being an adult and grown up. Having to take care of our yards as big kids. holes, picking up poop, that sort of thing. Well, if uh, you have your thoughts on either the remake or the original Jacob's Ladder or want to tell us about your yard or anything else we talk about on the show, give us a call. Let us know. 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And if you're looking for some older stuff, we are on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. We're podcasting all over the place but definitely go over like stitcher you can find all our shows there you can go to pod chaser leave us a review and uh head over to facebook and you can find us there again and if you look under your bed i'm there we will be there that's there smiling don't forget discord yeah we're on discord discord too we're all over the freaking place i forgot yeah come find us on discord and chat with us Chat with us on Discord. Or chat with us on Discord. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. What the hell is wrong with me? It's late. Thank you for listening. And uh, watch out for the homeless guys with tails. Oh, that was a tail. You thought it was yeah, a- I thought it was a tail. I thought it was a snake. I thought it was a penis. You hoped it was a penis. We need to knock out this watchman. Okay. Then we can sneak in and take the plans. I, I knew. I thought it was going to be Joel. I really did. <laughs> I, I thought. I just did the sound effect, Josh. Would be nice. <laughs>